Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply chain together. Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And joining me today is Jeremy Bodenhammer, co-founder and CEO of Shiphawk. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, Santosh. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, having me on today. Yeah, it's it's great to have you on. And, and you've been a longtime friend of the firm. And... Um, you know, we, we have quite a few things to chat about today, uh, but I would love to open up with for our audience the 90 second skinny on Shiphawk and what you and the team are building. Yeah, uh, Shiphawk, we're, we're shipping software, right? The, the industry term is transportation management system. Um, but Shiphawk is the premier packing and shipping software for ERP connected companies. Uh, we work primarily with high volume retail, wholesale, and e-commerce companies to lower their packing and shipping costs so they can compete on a level playing field with the e-commerce giants. And what that that looks like is really increasing order throughput and decreasing ship, shipping costs without adding headcount in the warehouse. And I have to ask, and I know the answer to this because uh, you were here in our offices a couple of years ago and, and you did a fireside chat. But please, like, share your story because the the Jeremy Bottenhammer story that's behind Shiphawk is super interesting. Oh, thank you. Um, I uh, out of college, I bought a, a failing pack and ship store here in Santa Barbara. You, it's nothing fancy. Think about it like a, a UPS store, mailboxes, etc. And um, I was putting my my wife through grad school at the time, so I couldn't quit my job and go work in the store. But the day she graduated, I did. I quit went to work in the store and this guy walks in with this life-size wooden rocking horse. Um, this was the depth of the great recession. He had lost, you know, his house. He was selling everything on eBay, trying to pay his bills. And this thing was huge. I mean, two grown men could get on this thing. And he asked me to ship it. And I said, yes. Um, even though I had no idea what freight was or freight brokers were, I had never shipped anything, you know, other than FedEx, UPS, postal type things. And so he leaves and I'm sitting there thinking, well, what do I do? So I call UPS and the first woman I got on the phone started laughing at me, says, we can't ship something like that. It's way too big. And I said, but you're UPS. She goes, maybe UPS Freight can help you. And she transfers me over to UPS Freight and she asked me a bunch of questions and I either make up the answers or like with freight class, tell her I don't even know what that means. So she was patient. She walks me through the process, gives me some outrageous quote, need thousands of dollars. And then tells me if I open an account, she can discount that quote by 68%. So I was lost at this point, but I took her discount and that was my first foray into shipping in, uh, uh, in any real uh, meaningful way. And I took that and grew that store to be one of the top performing stores of its kind in the US. And by uh, you know 2011, my phone was ringing off the hook and uh, e-commerce had picked up such steam and people were shipping things everywhere, selling them online, and no one knew what the shipping cost was. So my phone's ringing off the hook with people just asking over and over again, what is it? What is the shipping cost? 
I knew I couldn't solve the problem, you know, in a little brick and mortar store in Santa Barbara. So I sold uh, the company and raised some venture capital and uh, started Shiphawk. And our initial thesis was just answer the question of cost, not the old school way that that uh, carriers answered it with quotes that were different than your bill, but try to predetermine in advance what the real shipping cost would be. And since then, we've just listened to customers and it's evolved to uh, become a uh, full-scale parcel and less than truckload transportation management system. That's awesome. So great. So uh, we haven't had a guest per se come across and and talk about shipping software and and TMS in in this uh, particular application before. Would you be able to give us kind of a 101 primer on the industry and, and where we are in this segment? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the industry right now because of the pandemic. Um, and before the pandemic, you know, the major uh, catalyzer of, of all the change is really is in this country has been Amazon. Um, so we were already scrambling, right? And I'm sure you've seen that with your portfolio companies. Um, and so the, uh, the efforts to keep up with Amazon, um, kind of pushed the edges of what shipping software really was, right? That definition's changing as more uh, software components are having impact on the shipping process, the fulfillment process, the tracking process. Uh, examples are um, software getting better at leveraging data. And what that means is there's better pre-shipment visibility. You know the status of the order within the warehouse. There's better in-transit visibility. Um, companies like Convey are out there improving exception management and giving shippers more controls, right? Um, digital twin software has really taken off and has impacted uh, how workflows are modeled within the warehouse or how the warehouse is even laid out. Uh, the routes people are walking, um, you know, the, the uh, responsibilities that people are taking versus robots, et cetera. Um, and probably the most relevant with the pandemic is we're living in a world where shippers and warehouse operators now need to process more orders, a greater number of shipments with fewer bodies. They either can't have as many people in the warehouse or those people have to be faced, spaced further apart and the demand is higher than it's ever been. Uh, so we as shipping software uh, you know, uh, creators are really uh, confronted with delivering those solutions. Um, and it has been... Uh, it's been a crazy ride. Indeed. Indeed it has. And so digging into the Shiphawk product itself, I noted you have uh, seven different modules. Would you be able to kind of dig into them so we gain an appreciation as to what the software encompasses? Absolutely. And I don't think about in my head, I don't think about uh, the software in terms of the modules as I do in terms of what the purpose of uh, the module is. Like, what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, so with Shiphawk, we, what we, we're trying to do is we're trying to rate across parcel and less than truckload. And that's not just calling uh, APIs garbage in, garbage out. Uh, that's doing mode optimization, service optimization. It's really the utilization of the tariff, right? You can hire all these uh, consultants uh, to help you negotiate your tariffs with carriers, which I highly suggest. These guys are industry pros. Um, but once you have this tariff negotiated, very few shippers ever realize those discounts because they're not using software to automate the utilization of the tariff. So that is key. Uh, number two is multi-warehouse optimization. 
And this doesn't necessarily just mean multi-warehouse. This can also be shipped from store. It's shipping from multiple locations. How do you know which item to ship from where? How many door knocks are you going to stomach with your customers, right? What's your, your cost of, uh, you know, suboptimal components playing into that, that uh, optimization strategy? So where am I shipping from, right? Where, where do I have the items in stock? Uh, next would be packing optimization, uh, cartonization, which is really using software to tell the workers in the warehouse which box to use, how many um, items to put in each box, how to orient those items, um, how to assemble those uh, boxes onto pallets and pallets into trucks so that you're not violating any carrier rules. Um, you know, this is real fun stuff here, Santosh. Uh, but <laughs> vital uh, when it comes to cost minimaliz minimalization. Um, we have a rules-based shipping engine so that you can have uh, dynamic rules uh, down to the, the order level, the item level, or even the customer level. So everything is, uh, can meet the, uh, the delivery promises that you make with your customers. Um, then we have a real-time data and analytics and uh, custom reporting uh, module. And we handle all the shipping documentation and uh, post-purchase uh, track and trace, all the customer communication, making sure they know the status of their order at any point in time. And you know, I'll, I'll I'll chime in here. You know, for for some, this might not be uh, as as intriguing or, or interesting, but I I think for this audience, this audience recognizes that this is what being a logistician is about <laughs> is is having these types of capabilities and and this type of process enablement that that Shiphawk allows for. Yeah, those of us that are faced with with the bill, right? Or execution within the warehouse, understand how important these things are. I agree. Mm -hmm. I'd be really interested in digging into you. You offer a, a lot of this enablement. What type of benefits have you seen your customers um, uh, exhibit or, or observe in their own operation from adopting Shiphawk? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, before the pandemic, customers reached out to us and they basically said two things. They said, Number one, I don't want the workers in my warehouse making decisions. When they make decisions on an order-by-order order basis, it costs me money. And number two, they said, I need to reduce my shipping costs. I, I can't compete against these big guys if I'm you know, paying higher dim weight factors or whatever the case may be. And then post-pandemic, obviously, they're very interested in uh, improving throughput, which we've talked about a little bit already. Uh, but if you, you break it down to the, to the core values... Um, Shiphawk allows these, uh, these e-commerce um, operations to scale without adding headcount, to make sure they're packing orders in the right box every time, to make sure that they're optimizing for the right carrier and service level for every order. We analyzed um, almost three quarters of a million shipments on our platform one time um, of, of uh, customer data and prospect data. And we found that even in a single or, or double carrier environment, meaning you're only shipping with FedEx or you're shipping with FedEx and Postal, that customers were misrouting greater than one in five shipments. Wow. Um, it was going to the wrong service. So they're paying for an inflated service cost, even though a lower cost service would have still met the delivery promise. Um, and then we're reducing or eliminating manual processes. And by doing that, reducing the fulfillment costs and the shipping costs at the end of the day. So that's the value that people are really getting out of the software right now. So, you know, I, I, I've asked all this and, and really what I'm uh, really teeing up is your new book, uh, Adapt or Die, that uh, you released uh, last week. 
I'd be curious as an operator uh, who has built both in a legacy environment and then in this digital environment, what drove you to writing a book in the middle of a pandemic? Well, first with travel eliminated, I finally had time. Um, but the, uh, the big catalyst was that what I've seen as the biggest barrier to success in the current marketplace, um, for our target audience, which is e-commerce executives, you know, many, uh, manufacturers, distributors, uh, retailers is really, uh, the education component, um, independent merchants, not realizing the competitive threats that they're up against and not knowing the solutions they need to win. They are, in fact, I'll tell you two stories. Uh, I was on a call just before we started here uh, today um, with a buddy of mine from another company who was talking about one of his customers uh, who uh, sells on multiple marketplaces, including Amazon. And we've all heard the stories of Amazon, you know, finding products that perform well and, and then launching their own under their own private label. But I was shocked because this guy's customer sells dog food. And that's what Amazon knocked off this time. And I hadn't heard them getting into food wow. for people or animals before, but they had enough traction that Amazon now has their own, you know, private label, uh, according to this conversation. I, I haven't researched this yet, but everything he said makes sense. Um, the other story is that uh, with our sales team, I would say the vast majority of people that reach out to, the, to us, to our sales team, what they really want help with is solutioning right? It's not just, I need shipping software. It is their entire ecosystem. It's which WMS do I use, right? Should I work with multiple warehouses? Should I work with a dynamic warehousing solution like stored, right? There's so many different options and there's nobody out there that's really helping them put all these pieces together unless they're a huge company and can hire expensive consultants. So what I saw the opportunity and the need was, um, was I had time to put all this stuff down on paper and I'm hoping that it can um, help lead them in the right direction and to the right solutions. And, you know, the, the thing about this book that strikes me is that it seems to manifest a statement that I've made in years past about how supply chain is not just a cost center, it's actually a revenue driving function now. How, how do you think about that in the context of this book? Uh, well, I think you're, uh, I think you're right on the money there. Um, there's so much I could say about that. Uh, there's a million books about life in front of the buy button. And by that, I mean sales and marketing books and virtually no books on life behind the buy button, which is where you and I live, right? In operations. And it's really behind the buy button where all the growth and real competitive advancements um, are being made today. Um, when we talk about the supply chain, I'm talking about everything from packaging, right, all the way through the delivery itself, not just the shipping. Um, so to give you some examples of how I see this playing itself out and how that competitive advantage and, you know, profit driving and um, all those opportunities are really um, making a difference in the marketplace and for specific businesses. Uh, the first example um, I talk about in the book uh, is uh, packaging form factor uh, changes. And this isn't just how packaging historically has been made for shelves and is now being made for shipping, which is far less expensive. It's also better for the planet. And people are making a significant purchasing decisions based on 
um, you know, environmental friendliness and, mm-hmm. and human friendliness, right? One of our customers, Grove Collaborative, has made a commitment to being 100% plastic free by 2025. That's awesome. Uh, they're calling the initiative Beyond Plastic. And it, uh, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Um, I tell another story in the book about Norelco. They had a product um, that used to be sold in stores and um, it had 13 different packaging pieces for this one trimmer. And uh, they repackaged it for Amazon, reduced the materials by 80%, and now it's shipped in a simple brown box. Um, and that's also great for those of us that don't like fighting the, uh, the plastic clamshells. Um, <laughs> but I mean, bottom line, Amazon bought Ring, right? Because they want to get in your house, right? They want to make deliveries inside. Walmart's making deliveries into customers' refrigerators. Ikea bought TaskRabbit for in-home assembly. Um, these are be- becoming major differentiators by the giants. And so independents have to have a way to keep up and have to be innovating there as well. That's a really good point. There's never going to be a world where you just have the the giants and therefore having the right enablement for the independent e-com or uh, D2C brand is only gaining in, in relevance and, and importance. Absolutely. In fact, I was thinking about that as you were saying that I'm thinking about, you know, we don't think about it as supply chain as much, but a company like DoorDash, right? I've been reading all about their their IPO hopes lately. Uh, under the pandemic, their market share has grown. I mean, it's just insane. And what are they doing? They are profiting on that supply chain. Like that is in their entire business. They're adding an advantage that the independent, you know, restaurants and uh, and food service providers are not offering. Yeah, no, that's I think spot on. And and here at at Dynamo, we we definitely identify it as as a logistics business. Um, they just happen to push food through their network, uh, but but equally they they could try to push other things that 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 are similar in 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 shape and size to to meals. But around kind of that that ecom D to C enablement. You know, I, I'd be remiss not mentioning Shopify here, and I'd be curious where do they fit into the equation? Because I know that they're one of the five APIs of the apocalypse that you outline in your book. Yeah, um, the five APIs of the apocalypse are um, Amazon, Walmart, Alibaba, JD, and Shopify, and. Um, the way I think about them, and I encourage everyone in our industry to think about them, is that they want to not corner the market, but become the market. And their method for doing so is to build an infrastructure that they want to force independence onto. And with some of the uh, those businesses, if you are an independent and you're not willing to, uh, to fall in line, uh, they don't want you to be in business anymore. And I see Shopify, and I, I talk about them in the book as the independent merchant's only hope, right? Um, and, and they're not the only hope, but I, I want to prove a point here, which is the view of the future that Shopify takes versus the other four is radically different. Um, they, of course, want independent merchants to operate on their ecosystem and wherever possible entirely on their ecosystem. Um, but they're doing it specifically to empower independence. They recognize that the independents can't exist in this world without support from somebody of size and substance. Um, Shopify isn't out there white labeling products uh, that get traction on their platform, right? 
they aren't attempting to compete head to head with their merchants. Um, but they are doing the positive things that need to be done, like investing in their supply chain and exposing it to their merchants in an effort to depress prices and have a way to, co- to offer some sort of uh, service parity with the rest of the big guys. Um, the way I think about it, I, I, uh, I heard this once. It's an amazing quote that Amazon partners with companies the way a virus partners with a host and Shopify's business model is the opposite. Yeah. Shopify is the perfect partner for brands looking to build their own businesses. Right. And I, that's, I just think that's a, a great, uh, a great hope for the, for the independents to be able to rely on. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I I'd be, I, the, the the thing that I'm sitting here and, and trying to determine is uh, Shopify has been a great platform, great enabler, accelerant for folks like you and I, if we wanted to get into the e-com business. But at what point do they need to maybe make decisions that don't feel as open and as e-com merchant centric? And... I, I don't know if you have a take on that, but maybe that's actually the the beginning of the end for Shopify because it might go against their North Star. Yeah, um, I mean, I I think that um, you know, there's a book that I I quote uh, rather liberally um, in Adapt or Die called The Autonomous Revolution, and. They talk about the the pace of change and how the pace of change it continues to accelerate and the impacts on humanity. And I think we're at a point in time where lower costs alone and profitability alone um, can no longer seek to make the world a better place. So I think that what we're seeing is we're seeing this uh, this divergence of businesses and you see companies that are investing in the world and investing in humans and you see other ones that are investing in profitability at all costs. And I think they're both today doing very well. And it's going to be interesting how that changes and whether consumers allow it to persist, right? Because Amazon's success is really by way of us. Right, I'm not going to lie and tell you I don't purchase stuff on Amazon. My wife makes fun of me on a regular basis uh, because of what I talk about, you know, in my book and to our customers, and the fact that I am an active customer. <laughs> um, so, um, but we we support that, and if we're supporting businesses like Shopify um, and their merchants by way of Shopify, it gives the comp- a company like Shopify more leeway to be able to make those decisions that are best for the merchant, best for humanity. And I think the markets at this point have been supporting that. So I'm encouraged that and hopeful that they will continue to. Yeah. So kind of shifting gears here uh, to, to chat about robotics for a bit. If robotics are key in driving speed and e-com fulfillment, uh, and there's more details in your book, how long do existing models or approaches to e-com fulfillment have where they tend to rely on warm bodies in a room kind of operating like a legacy 3PL really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think robots are awesome because you always think back to when you were a kid and you know you think about movies and all the cool things that robots can do or you know them attacking the world and even though you don't want it to happen, it's still exciting to watch. Right, but the reality is a lot more more humdrum in many many cases. Um, so robots are really only key to speed in some places today. Right, for example, it's hard to train a robot to perform complex movements like a human. 
And to make matters worse, inventories aren't just becoming greater in number and more diverse. They're turning over. They're changing faster. And so by the time you change the robot to do a very complex task, like pick up a specific item, right, that has a different shape and size and, you know, ability to be handled than, than another, right? Think like a, a piece of fruit versus a, a baseball, right? And those, the products change though. And so you have to have humans involved um, to do those jobs. And I don't see rob- I don't see the speed of robots taking those uh, specific jobs uh, moving very fast. In some areas, they're moving very quickly. I don't see it there. Um, also, um, the um, system integrators that are required to get robots set up, working with all the internal software and trained to do the job that needs to be done, um, are not in you know uh, ready supply. Uh, they are booked uh, and usually with very large customers that have made significant investments. So smaller guys, mid-sized companies just don't have the same access. I had a great uh, conversation with uh, Dynamo Portfolio Company CEO, um, Eric Neves from Plus One Robotics about this. Um, and he had a great saying and he uses it as a hashtag and I love it <laughs> and I've started using it, which is robots work, people rule. Yep. Um, and I love that because it's true. We want robots to do certain jobs, but that doesn't mean we don't want to take care of people in the process. Yep. Yeah. I was actually just going to, uh, echo similar sentiment and, and I think, uh, that will be really interesting as, as an investor, I'm really curious as to how, um, the e-com fulfillment process will reshape to have both man and machine, especially as we're about to stare down a holiday season that probably will bring more volume than we've ever seen uh, in e-com and, and parcel networks. So January will be interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Jeremy, who, who should be reading this book and why should they be reading it? Well, I, I wrote it for e-commerce executives. Um, and I wrote it because uh, I believe they need specific information in order to compete against the giants, the big five, right? Um, or the five APIs of the apocalypse, um, who don't want a quarter of the market. They want to become the market. Uh, there's an amazing line in the book that I'm really proud of, so I'll just read it to you. Um, those are few and far between, just for the record. <laughs> um, so in referencing the big five, I say they already own the factories, planes, ships, trucks, warehouses, sorting facilities, distribution centers, the vans that speed through your neighborhood, the g- digital infrastructure the entire system lives on, and all the data on every customer who has ever clicked, researched, bought, sold, returned, or otherwise engaged with them. So these these giants are at such an advantage uh, from a data perspective, not just at knowing their buyers historically, but having inputs to know them into the future and having an entire supply chain at their disposal that they can utilize or uh, withhold. Mm-hmm. Um, that the that just takes, it takes a, a moment for us to separate from that and strategize how are we going to compete with companies that powerful? And so that's why these, uh, these e-commerce executives should read the book. Got it. Well, I can uh, for sure tell all of our e-com retail executives that this is definitely one worth reading. Uh, I had the benefit of 
uh, getting a copy early. So I'm, I'm super thankful for that, Jeremy. One last question before we part ways here. Um, I'd be curious, what was the most surprising thing you uncovered related to this topic as you conducted your research? Because it's been a this has been a year-long effort and really multi-year if you draw on all of your background and experience. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that jumps to mind first has to be the the big five data points. Like I keep talking about how big they are, but it's almost hard to fathom how big they are. Here, here's a few a few points that that stick with me. Amazon spends almost a quarter of a billion dollars on each new smart warehouse. Amazon stocks supposedly over 119 million products. Um, in 2019, Walmart was generating an average of $4 million an hour with their omni-channel uh, sales. And then the biggest one of all, um, and I'm sure you've heard this before, that on Singles Day in 2019, Alibaba shipped 1 billion packages in a single day. So that leaves me with the question, how are small and mid-sized companies supposed to compete with numbers like these? And that is why I wrote the book. Mm, that's awesome. With that, folks, uh, definitely go check it out. Get a copy for yourself, for your group, uh, and uh, you will not regret it. And uh, Jeremy, I assume if, if they want to uh, bounce ideas off of you, uh, discuss what you have in the book, they could also uh, get you on, on social media. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. They can get me on uh, uh, LinkedIn more than anywhere else. And I'm also on uh, at my website uh, at jeremybodenhammer.com. Um, and we've got links to partners there and free downloads and a bunch of, of cool stuff to help them. So awesome. thank you, Santosh. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, coming on and uh, wish you a great holiday season as well. You as well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.